Have you ever looked up at the night sky and wondered about your place in the universe? Or felt the warmth of our golden sun on your face and marveled at how our lives are sustained by a fiery ball 150 million kilometers away? There are more stars in our universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches on Earth combined. Our planet is but a mote of dust suspended on a sunbeam. Little wonder then that the beauty and abundance of outer space has called to the spirit of exploration that is characteristic to our species. Hello, my name is Geraldine Goeskolar. I am adjunct associate professor of law at the National University of Singapore. Today, I'd like to give a broad introductory overview of international space law, what it is, how it came about, and the context in which it operates. International space law is perhaps a misnomer. Space law doesn't purport to regulate all of outer space, a feat that would be as presumptuous as it is impossible. Instead, this field is about the international law that governs human activities in the exploration and use of outer space. International law, as traditionally defined, consists of a body of rules which are legally binding on states in their intercourse with each other. International space law, therefore, refers to this body of rules binding on states that governs their activities in the exploration and use of outer space. How did this law come about? It started, as most good things do, with an excursion into science fiction. At the turn of the 20th century, there was a torrent of scientific research into the exploration of outer space, inspired by the writings of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, as well as philosophical movements such as the Rus Russian cosmism. In 1903, the year in which the Wright brothers made the historic first flight on a Kitty Hawk, Konstantin Silskovsky published a first scientific study on space travel, seizing on rocketry as a technology that would make space travel a reality. Seven years later, in 1910, the Belgian jurist Emile Lord first wrote about a new law that he believed would govern juridical relations and practical questions in space, including the use of the radio frequency spectrum. Other highly qualified publicists began writing on this topic, recognizing that a separate regime of law would apply in space as opposed to the air, given the altitude and operational differences between air and spaceflight. In 1926, V.A. Zarzar asserted that nations had complete sovereignty over their navigable subjects in airspace, but that there was an altitude at an area he called the International Zone, which would begin above that. Vladimir Mandel took the same stance in his 1932 thesis, writing that flights in a zone above the navigable airspace would be of a nature so different than that of aeronautical flight that this zone would be beyond the control of the subjacent states. Now, rockets had been in use as early as 10th century Song Dynasty China, but it was the invention of liquid-propelled rockets that ushered rocketry into the modern era. In 1926, Robert Goddard attached a supersonic nozzle to the combustion chamber of a liquid-fueled rocket engine. In doing so, he more than doubled its thrust and raised engine efficiency from 2% to 64%. The strategic and military potential of rocketry was realized, just as deteriorating international relations marched the world towards the Second World War. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, rocket technology development proceeded in secrecy. Rocketry research was undertaken both by German industry and by German scientists. And by the early 1930s, German rocket engineers had built and launched a liquid propellant rocket. The German Reichswehr took a particular interest in using these rockets as a workaround of the limitation placed on Germany's access to long-distance weaponry by the 1990 Treaty of Versailles. 
Similar research was undertaken in the Soviet Union, where rocket technology was used to assist aircraft takeoff and tactical ground-to-ground assault. Rocket research was also undertaken by amateur American and British rocket engineers, although with much less success. The use of German V-2 rockets in the Second World War by Nazi Germany demonstrated lethal potential of guided rockets as weapons. At the end of the Second World War, victorious British, Russian, and United States crews raised to seize technology and personnel from the German rocket program at Pennymunde. In the 1940s, as former German technology and personnel were integrated and put to work, especially in the Soviet Union and the United States, two significant developments took place. The first was the 28 August 1948 announcement by the United States that it had approached the governments of Argentina, Australia, Chile, France, New Zealand, Norway, and the United Kingdom in order to establish a form of internationalization over the Antarctic region for the purposes of scientific investigation and research. This would lead to the unprecedented agreement of establishing a global commons for international cooperation and scientific investigation. The second event was the May 1949 publication of a letter by Ralph Andrew Smith, a British engineer, declaring the moon to be the common heritage of mankind. The same turn of phrase was used in a French pamphlet published the same year, where it was observed that the conquest of space may mean that all the solar system, and not only the Earth, deserves to be considered the heritage of mankind. On the 21st of July, 1950, the United Kingdom and the United States signed the agreement regarding the establishment of a high-altitude interceptor range for guided missiles. This was the first international agreement on the test and operation of rockets, which also provided for the passage of rockets through the superjacent airspace of a non-launching state. Throughout the 1950s, the academic study of international space law flourished, with various dedicated institutes being founded in universities worldwide. Academic publications and conferences on space law became more commonplace, and Wilf Heinrich, Prince of Hanover, published the first known doctoral dissertation on space law. The 4th of October 1957 launch by the Soviet Union of the world's first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1, demonstrated that at least one state had the necessary technology to launch objects into orbit. This event signaled the beginning of the space race between the Soviet Union and the United States. Both states intended to use outer space for strategic and military purposes. However, they both came quickly to the understanding that some minimum international regulation of outer space within the framework of the United Nations was necessary in order to preserve outer space for peaceful purposes. In November 1957, just one month after the launch of Sputnik 1, the Soviet Union proposed the establishment of a UN agency for international cooperation and research in cosmic space, which would serve as a clearinghouse and coordinator for research in outer space. The United States responded with a counterproposal for an ad hoc committee instead. In 1958, the United Nations General Assembly created an ad hoc committee comprising 18 states, with the mandate to report on the activities and resources of the UN and its agencies in the area of international cooperation for the peaceful uses of outer space, the future organization of arrangements, and the nature of legal problems that potentially could arise in the exploration of outer space. A legal subcommittee and a technical subcommittee were further established in order to fulfill the mandate of this ad hoc committee, which had concluded that, in the regulation of outer space, no analogies to aviation or maritime law should be made, given the uniqueness of space activities. On the 12th of December 1959, the ad hoc committee was made permanent by the General Assembly, 
with an initial membership of 24 states. Now known as the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, or COPUOS, its membership has been successfully expanded over the years. It is now one of the largest committees in the United Nations. The mandate of the committee was to review the scope of international cooperation in space activities and to study practical and feasible means that could be taken under the auspices of the United Nations in order to give effect to programs to promote the peaceful uses of outer space. From its formation in 1959, COPIOS has been instrumental in elaborating the basic framework of international space law. Its first and perhaps most significant contribution was the drafting of a Declaration of Legal Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, which was adopted unanimously by the UN General Assembly in 1963. That declaration became the template from which 1967 Treaty on the Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration of Use of Outer Space was drawn, establishing the basic principles of law applicable to activities in outer space. The committee went on to elaborate these basic principles of law in four further treaties in the 1960s and 70s. The 1968 Agreement on the Rescue of Astronauts, the Return of Astronauts, and the Return of Objects Launched into Outer Space. The 1972 Convention on International Liability for Damage Caused by Space Objects. The 1975 Convention on Registration of Objects Launched into Outer Space. And the 1979 Agreement Governing the Activities of States on the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies. The growing membership of the United Nations in general, and COPIOS in particular, together with changing international attitudes and shifting international concerns, made achieving consensus on the content of formal agreements increasingly difficult. By 1980, it became obvious that consensus would not be reached on further treaties relating to space activities. However, as space applications became more common, COPIOS managed the drafting and adoption of additional General Assembly resolutions on principles related to specific uses of outer space. These included the principles governing the use of states of artificial Earth satellite for international direct television broadcasting, which was adopted on the 10th of December 1982, the principles related to remote sensing of the Earth from outer space, which was adopted on the 3rd of December 1986, the principles relevant to the use of nuclear power sources in outer space, which was adopted on the 14th of December 1992, and the Declaration on International Cooperation in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space for the benefit and in the interests of all states, taking into particular account the needs of developing countries, which was adopted on the 13th of December 1996. Other significant and more recent General Assembly resolutions that were drafted under the auspices of COPUOS include the resolutions on the application on the concept of the launching state, which was adopted on the 10th of December 2004, recommendations on enhancing the practice of states and international intergovernmental organizations in registering space objects, which was adopted on the 17th of December 2007, the endorsement of the Space Debris Mitigation Guidelines, which was adopted on 22nd of December 2007, and recommendations on national legislation relevant to the peaceful exploration and use of outer space, which was adopted on the 11th of December 2013. COPIOS also regularly adopts resolutions on international cooperation in the peaceful uses of outer space and the prevention of an arms race in outer space. In parallel with these developments, various international organizations were founded with the purpose of advancing international cooperation in the peaceful exploration and use of outer space. These include international intergovernmental organizations, such as the International Telecommunications Satellite, or Intelsat organization, the European Space Agency, ESA, and the International Organization of Space Communications, Intersputnik. 
International academic institutions and non-governmental organizations were also founded, including the International Academy of Astronautics, the International Astronautical Federation, and the International Institute of Space Law. These organizations have contributed immeasurably to the dialogue and discussion necessary for the progressive development of international space law. International space law also comprises the various regional, multilateral, and bilateral agreements between states active in outer space, including the Convention for the Establishment of a European Space Agency and the Intergovernmental Agreement for the Construction and Operation of the International Space Station. State practice in the form of domestic legislation dedicated to the regulation of national activities in outer space has, in the meantime, developed in starts and stops. The first two states to promulgate national legislation relating to space activities were, unsurprisingly, the first two with direct access to outer space, the former Soviet Union and the United States. France, Japan, and Norway followed suit in the 1960s, and today, the most active nations in outer space, that is, the most specially affected states, have adopted domestic legislation relating to space activities. These include Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Brazil, Canada, Chile, China, Germany, the Netherlands, South Africa, South Korea, Spain, Sweden, Ukraine, and the United Kingdom. There are also various voluntary regimes, such as the 1987 Missile Technology Control Regime, as well as voluntary codes of conduct, such as the Guidelines on Space Debris Mitigation produced by the Interagency Space Debris Coordination Committee. Moreover, framework agreements are also common, including the 2007 Global Exploration Strategy between the space agencies of 13 states and the European Space Agency. Now, common threads emerge from this patchwork of legal regimes governing the exploration and use of outer space. These can be distilled into general principles of law that form the basic concepts of international space law today. These general principles of law have been repeated and reiterated in various international documents, including the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, as well as the other four treaties concluded under the auspices of the United Nations. They have also been repeated time and again in each of the resolutions on outer space and space activities adopted by consensus at the UN General Assembly. These basic concepts are that outer space constitutes a global commons and is of race-communist nature, that outer space is the common heritage of mankind, that the freedom of exploration and use of outer space is to be protected, that outer space should be used exclusively for peaceful purposes, and that the exploration and use of outer space should be carried out for the benefit of all peoples. Universal idealism was the motivating factor behind a broad international consensus on many of the basic concepts of international space law. However, important points of disagreement remain. Chief among them is the lack of definition of where exactly outer space is and what exactly a space object is. Now, much more than semantics, these definitions are important since they define the scope and application of international space law. So where exactly does outer space start? There is no specific delimitation of outer space in international law or indeed in any field of space science and engineering. In international space law, there are two approaches to this conundrum, the spatialist approach and the functionalist approach. Under the spatialist approach, outer space begins at a certain physical altitude above sea level. To complicate matters, however, there is no general agreement on where exactly this altitude should be, since the Earth's atmosphere does not abruptly end, but instead it progressively thins with altitude. One suggestion is that outer space would begin at an altitude above that of the von Kármán line. The von Kármán line is the altitude at which the speed necessary to aerodynamically support a vehicle's full weight is equivalent to its orbital velocity. 
It is therefore the highest altitude at which a vehicle's orbital speed provides sufficient aerodynamic lift to fly in a straight line that does not follow the curvature of the Earth's surface. This altitude is approximately 100 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, although it varies depending on the density of the atmosphere at a given location and time, as affected by physical factors such as magnetic index and solar flux. Another suggestion made by the International Law Association in 1968 was that outer space should refer to all space at or above the lowest perigee attained as of the 27th of January 1967, the date on which the Outer Space Treaty came into force. The second approach is known as the functionalist approach. This approach is less concerned with the actual altitude to which a vehicle is launched, but rather focuses on the purposes for which the vehicle or its payload is employed. The idea is that international air law should apply to aeronautical um, activities, and international space law should apply to astronautical activities or activities directed to the exploration and use of outer space. Under this approach, space law applies in the case of an aborted launch of astronauts to the International Space Station, but air law is applicable to the carriage of a space shuttle on top of a Boeing 747. One problem with this approach is that it does not address hybrid vehicles, which may perform both aviation and spaceflight activities. To date, there is no explicit agreement on which approach applies in international space law. However, there is considerable state practice and opinion jurors that a delimitation is necessary, and indeed that the 100-kilometer altitude boundary would delimit airspace from outer space. Statements and proposals made at the United Nations, including from states such as Belgium, China, Germany, Italy, Kazakhstan, Pakistan, and the Russian Federation, as well as from the European Union as a bloc, have all explicitly referred to the 100-kilometer altitude as the boundary beyond which outer space begins. Several states, including Australia, South Africa, and the United States, have also promulgated domestic legislation referring to the 100-kilometer boundary as the nominal line beyond which outer space begins, or as the point of re-entry into national airspace. As a consequence, it appears that there is a norm crystallizing which accepts both the spatialis approach and the 100-kilometer altitude as the limit of airspace, beyond which international space law would apply. Now, the second issue is a lack of a definition of space objects. This is significant because liability in the international space law regime is triggered only in the case of damage caused by a space object. However, nowhere in any of the treaties relating to space law can a definition of space object be found. To date, there seems to be agreement among highly qualified publicists that a space object is any man-made item that is attempted or intended to be physically brought into outer space. However, there are problems with this definition. First, this definition takes the functionalist approach, which would be in contradiction to state practice relating to the delimitation of outer space. Now, can one approach be taken for delimitation and another be taken in relation to the definition of space objects? Secondly, this definition again presupposes the delimitation of outer space vis-à-vis -vis national airspace. In plain language, before we can determine whether an object is physically brought into outer space, we need to know exactly where outer space begins. The greatest challenge to international space law, however, lies in the context in which it operates. International space law lies at the confluence of several complicated factors. First, it deals with a theater of particular strategic, political, and military significance. Secondly, it seeks to regulate cutting-edge technologies that are novel and rapidly evolving. 
Moreover, much of the technology being de developed is kept under wraps, both for reasons of technical advantage and for commercial exclusivity. Thirdly, it governs a high-stakes field that requires enormous investment and ultra-hazardous activities. Fourthly, it must be able to address a host of different actors and stakeholders from individuals to private entities and multinational corporations to non-governmental organizations and international intergovernmental organizations. International space law plays the schizophrenic role of having to straddle all of these factors while providing a stable structure to enable the continued exploration and use of outer space, and at the same time remaining sufficiently flexible in order to react to changes in the field. Ultimately, international space law inspires. It represents the triumph of idealism and good faith over petty squabbles in a scramble for wealth and power. It gives expression to the best qualities of humanity. It provides a legal framework that has witnessed not only the greatest achievements of our species, but also its greatest collective endeavors. It seeks not only to protect the future of our planet, but also to back up our biosphere by making humanity a multi-planet species. And that, at the root of it, is what international space law is. Thank you.